So ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Welcome to the Wellness Cast. I'm Joe Bankman, professor at Stanford Law School and also psychologist. My partner in these podcasts is Sarah Weinstein, lawyer turned therapist and external director of the Wellness Project here. Our guest today is Ashby Pate. Ashby is a former associate justice of the Supreme Court of Palau and now a lawyer in Birmingham, Alabama. Last year, Ashby delivered the closing arguments in the judicial ethics case that resulted in the removal of then-Judge Roy Moore from Alabama's highest court. Pate is also well known for a speech he gave to the American College of Trial Lawyers entitled, Be the Light. Today, the podcast is going to be a bit different from our past episodes. Usually, we focus on the individual side of wellness, stress, anxiety, addiction, and so on. It's what keeps us up at night. Yes, Joe, I think what's keeping my clients up at night recently is what's going on in our country. The same is true with my clients, Sarah. And today we're going to focus on a concept of public wellness, shared acceptance of each other, truth in government and public discourse. Our guest today, Ashby Pate, comes to prominence by his inspirational Be the Light speech, which in part is about the connection between the two types of wellness the individual need for connection, the rule of law in making or breaking that connection, and the need to hear out both sides. So the way it came about, Ashby, for you to be on the Wellness Cast is through a mutual acquaintance in Birmingham who sent me a link to your speech. I think my quote to you at the time was something like, it made my entire weekend. So welcome, Ashby. We're very glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me, Joe and Sarah. I really appreciate being here. One of the doors that opened for you after your speech was that you were asked to be co-prosecutor in the 2016 judicial ethics case against Roy Moore. Uh, As a co-prosecutor, and now simply by being a lawyer in Alabama, you've been thrown into one of the biggest social disconnections we can imagine. The Roy Moore case seems to be a symbol at this moment of the incredible divisiveness in our country. Before we go into the details of that case, what's the general feeling there in Alabama right now? I can tell you that it's really a toss-up, and I think there's a reason for that. Um, One of the reasons really goes back to maybe the the content of the speech I gave uh, a couple years ago, which is a, a real lack of connection between the electorate uh, and the people who are purporting to run for office in Alabama, and, and, and a lack of connection between various classes of the electorate. That's, that's my main um, observation as I watch this unfold, is how quickly we separate into our camps, into these little silos, um, uh, echo chambers, if you will, and how quickly we, we dismiss information that doesn't help our candidate and how quickly we lap up the ones that, 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 that do. Can you give us a sense of the camps? My personal observation is that it doesn't fall on any racial lines uh, or any 
gender lines, as, as some people might think, given the nature of some of the allegations against Mr. Moore. Uh, I think more than anything, it probably falls along class lines. Um, and, and that's not a Democrat-Republican divide. The same was true in the Republican primary between the incumbent Luther Strange and, and Roy Moore. Um, uh, the, and I don't really pretend to understand that, but I, I can tell you this. Um, one of the observations I've made in watching the national press's attention on to this is that it's, it's really accentuating that class divide. Because when you have Hollywood, California, New York, the coastal elites, uh, as they are called, telling Alabama voters how they should vote, there, there really is a, a, an accentuation of the class divide that I think is missed um, by some of the well-meaning folks outside of, of Alabama's borders. So the election can be a plebiscite against coastal elites <laughs> as opposed to decision on the merits. I fear that that's what it's turning into. Before all of this, there was uh, a general sense, I think, that there was two camps. There was sort of Roy Moore's faithful, which tend to just be a static group that are going to vote for Mr. Moore no matter what, and then everyone else, right? And the everyone else camp was Republicans and Democrats. Um, now with the national attention and with President Trump's uh, endorsement, it's becoming more of a Republicans versus Democrat uh, thing. Yeah, and hearing that is so interesting. We'd love for you to talk more specifically now about the Roy Moore case. So how do you view the hearing in retrospect, given what is now alleged to be the both sides of Moore's story? I assume you're referring to the, the allegations that have recently come to light? Yes. You know, I don't view that trial any differently as a result of that. Um, you know, that trial was about a very specific issue, which was whether Chief, then Chief Justice Roy Moore defied both a standing federal injunction and defied the Supreme Court's holding in Obergefell uh, when he ordered Alabama's probate judges not to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. What was the atmosphere on that trial. It's a subject of gay marriage. Where are Alabamans on that issue? Did Roy Moore have the position most of the state's voters share? The atmosphere around the trial was very heated, very dynamic. Some might say it sort of resembled a circus outside on the courthouse steps. The camps had sort of entrenched themselves. There were rainbow flags and drag queens on one side of the of, of the street and, um, you know, families holding uh, pro Roy Moore signs on the other shouting across the street. And so in downtown Montgomery, Alabama, that was certainly the most activity uh, most people had seen in a long time. And walking up those steps on the morning of the trial was really like going in a gauntlet. There was a lot of finger pointing. And uh, as I as I sat at council table, my co-counsel, I remember thinking to myself that we were definitely in the minority in that room in terms of the people who had turned out for that trial. What did it feel like when you got word that you'd won? I had a mixture of emotions. Obviously, I was happy because the rule of law, in my opinion, had been upheld. 
I was also selfishly happy that I'd won a lawsuit. Anyone who gets into this business has to admit to their own selfish motivations in the adversarial process. But it was also a sad day for Alabama, in my opinion, that we're still fighting that fight and that the chief justice, the state's highest judicial officer, um, was having to be removed for, in my opinion, defying the rule of law. Did you get blowback from the community or is this one of these split cases where parts of the community are happy about the verdict and other parts are sad and they meet only at the courthouse steps? You're probably correct on the latter. Most people with whom I interacted were were pleased. And obviously there was an entire faction of people in this state that were not. But I think that goes to the, the serious disconnect that that is occurring both in our state and in our country right now that really fuels these type of, of issues, which is, you know, there, there really is a lack of, of ability to empathize and, and, and meaningfully connect with other human beings to really understand where they're coming from. What you just said and what we've been talking about makes me think of the work of psychologist Daniel Kahneman. I heard him speak recently and something he said really resonated with me, which is that, you know, we have reasons for our beliefs that sometimes come to us quickly, but the causes of the beliefs are often rooted in our personal history coming from people who we trust in our family. Um, and it, that also connects well to your speech, Ashby, too, because I think, you know, the world is made up of stories, not facts. And it may provide some explanation of why the facts are not really very persuasive to people. That's exactly right. I, I couldn't agree more. Tell us, Ashby, how we should think about Roy Moore supporters. You're in Alabama. Give us a sympathetic portrayal of what's leading to that vote. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the best person to ask that. You know, look, there's a lot of factors that, that play into to being told how to be and being told how to vote. And, and Roy Moore has tapped into maybe what is a very Southern but and, and certainly a very Alabaman way of thinking, which is we don't need someone to tell us how to mind our house. And I think in that sense, um, that, that comes from a very... Uh, admirable place, which is a, a sense of, of rugged individualism and a sense of, um, you know, th this desire to to be seen as, as somehow not less than someone who, who lives, you know, on the coast, right? And there's also some value in, in holding on to certain traditional beliefs, which I think many people in Alabama and all across America uh, feel are under a sort of constant assault and, and the demeaning of um, a, a belief system that um, in terms of one's personal story is what defines so many people, not only in Alabama, but across the country. And so it, it doesn't take that big of a jump to understand why someone would support someone who purports, at least, uh, to be fighting for someone's firmly held religious beliefs or sort of Alabama for Alabamans belief. Now, Ashby, thank you. Could you could you do the opposite for us? Because you're all about hearing both sides. So you said how the Roy Moore supporters are thinking in an empathic way. What would you tell them? 
to convince them that Roy Moore doesn't stand for those values? How would you make the other argument to those supporters? Well, I would say to look at his record. That's what I'd say. I'd say, look at look at what is at least alleged to have been a self-enriching foundation that he founded after he was removed from office the first time, <clears throat> and which has certainly been a, a cash cow for him and his family. I'd say look at his ability even to get along with fellow Republicans here in Alabama, or his lack thereof, and, and ask yourself whether the result would be any different if he goes to uh, a Congress that is far more hostile in terms of actually having different views than here in Alabama, where it's pretty easy to be a Republican. And, you know, I'd ask them to search their hearts about the, the type of tactics that I believe that Roy Moore has engaged in uh, over the years. Uh, I recently was reflecting about that day when I left the courthouse after giving closing arguments in that trial. And as I walked down those steps, you know, I watched as, as then Chief Justice Moore relished in the adoration of, of, of an agitated crowd and, and, and enjoyed watching and encouraged that crowd, which had children um, no older than my own daughters holding signs that spewed venom towards the peaceful protesters below. And I, I watched him walk back inside that courthouse, smirking a bit underneath what's inscribed in the rotunda, which says equal and exact justice for all men of whatever state or persuasion. And I thought to myself, this isn't the type of person that believes in what he's saying. One final question uh, on Roy Moore. Any predictions? I believe that the people of Alabama will do the right thing. Uh, and I believe that I, I believe that Doug Jones is going to win. I may be proven wrong, but I have a lot of faith in the people here. And um, I think it's a toss-up, but I'm going to go with Doug. Typically, we like to sign off by asking our guest about a wellness practice that you use to thrive in your own life and career. But today, because we're talking about public wellness, which of course is really just our collective personal wellness, we thought it might be helpful to talk a little bit about how each of us is managing during this challenging time. So let's start with you, Joe. How are you coping with all of this? Well, Sarah, I try to do whatever I can to push the ball forward as best I can. So Stanford Law School is me a little bit of a bully pulpit and uh, I might write, write an editorial and I have, and I'm a talking head from time to time on various shows. After I've done that, I try to have a lot of me time and frankly to avoid conversations where people are just getting worked up and angry with no visible output. How about you, Sarah? I've been thinking a lot about this recently, and for me, there really are three things that have been helping to cope. And the first is friendships, and in particular, those friendships that go way back, where I know the people very well, and they know me very well. And there's something that's been feeling very important about those connections. Because what's going on in our country, it's not only the content of what I've been reading in the news, but also just the way it's being presented. And in my opinion, with a little bit of a lack of complexity and nuance. So those those deep connected friendships have just very felt very important to me recently um, for having 
conversations that feel more satisfying. The second is music. And music has always been something that helps me um, in my life. It's a little bit of an escape maybe, but it just takes me to a much happier place than um, what I've been reading in the news lately. And the third actually on that point, and I discuss this quite a bit with my clients, is that I think we all know how much news we can take in for ourselves. And, and I have to admit, I think I'm at my saturation point. So I've been limiting it. So and how about for you, Ashby? What have you been doing to keep yourself grounded in what is maybe a little bit of a challenging political moment there in Alabama? You know, one of the things I've learned over the past few years is I don't argue as much. Um, I think it's our, our, our natural inclination to, as we've talked about so far on this podcast, to dig in and, and try to prove a point. I'm right and you're wrong. And anyone who's been around the dinner table uh, over the past year and a half, people who uh, have strong feelings about the last presidential election knows that that, that doesn't really get you anywhere. And that's actually been a, a, a very enlightening practice for me, because as a lawyer and as someone who has defined his identity for so long on his ability to argue, it's been really liberating to avoid argument and not just for the sake of avoiding confrontation, but to try to use that time when you're with someone who you know thinks differently than you. And I assure you in the state of Alabama, I'm surrounded by that rather than trying to uh, prove a point, show why I'm wrong is to try to understand, right? Try to understand that person's story and what motivates them to believe that. As a, I've joked with you many times, Ashby, that I think maybe you're a psychologist at heart instead of a lawyer. So I appreciate your answer about arguing less and listening more. Well, I'm thinking, Ashby, that you're a singer rather than any of those things, because that Violite speech starts off with an unbelievably great brief cover of, I believe the song is Lead Belly's Midnight Special. That's right. I always wanted to play first base for the Chicago Cubs. Uh, when I realized that, that wasn't going to happen, I picked up a guitar. Spent a lot of time working on that. It means a lot to hear you say you enjoyed that because I worked really hard on that for a long time. And, and I do love singing. That's for sure. Ashby, we didn't script this at all. Would you be willing just to hum a few bars to kind of give us our closing? <laughs> Let the midnight special shine a light on me. Let the midnight special shine a ever-loving light on me. Thank you so much, Ash. <laughs> Thank you, Ashby. What a lovely way to close. For anyone who would like to hear more of Ashby singing and listen to his Be the Light speech, which I highly recommend, please see our website at www law.stanford.edu backslash wellness project. We hope you've enjoyed our special episode on public wellness. Thanks for listening and please tune in again next time for another episode of the Wellness Cast.